0: Welcome to the Danny Goldberg Rock and Rolls Hour. In this podcast, Danny shares his longtime connection to the path of the heart, as well as his very engaged life of social activism. If you are interested in supporting Danny's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Danny. Okay, hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls. And I'm really excited today to be speaking to Robert Wright, whose current book, Why Buddhism is True, is a bestseller. And having a bestseller about Buddhism to me is a quite a rare occurrence. But beyond that, it's a book that really I have enjoyed reading because. Uh, I've always been kind of intimidated by Buddhism. I, I felt I, I just wasn't quite disciplined enough or smart enough to to be a Buddhist, but, uh, and this is a very um, a book for people like me. It really it really uh, tries to meet people uh, in the real world with Buddhism as opposed to coming from the the mountaintop um, What about this title, though, Why Buddhism is True? Does this mean that non-Buddhism is not true?
1: Uh, (laughs) um, No, it doesn't mean that. Uh, And first of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate, uh, I really appreciate it. And I appreciate what you said about the book, because I very much wanted it to be a book uh, that can introduce people to Buddhism, even if they're not very familiar with it. And if they are meditating a little, can maybe... Help them get a little further down the path, um, but but the title you you are right to single out the title and raise questions about it because it kind of invites criticism if not disdain. I mean it it sounds a little um I guess ambitious would be the polite word. Um,
0: well, it sounds the danger. It's it, it it it's it's. Listen, it's a bestseller, so it's obviously a good title. There is
1: that to be said for the but, title, but yes. but
0: uh, it it sounds a little tribal, and I and I and I'm curious uh, just how how you frame it.
1: Yeah, well, I, I have a, a note to readers. I mean, there's a few kinds of attacks on the title that I anticipated. I try to defuse them all with. Uh, a, a, a little note to readers at the beginning kind of conveying what I mean by true. And, and uh, one thing I say is this doesn't mean that... I'm not talking about the part of Buddhism that would be incompatible with like other religions because I'm not really talking about the what you might call the supernatural part of Buddhism, reincarnation, and so on. I'm talking about a philosophy of life uh and a kind of i guess you could say a diagnosis of the human predicament you know what what buddhism thinks the the challenge of living is and a prescription for the human predicament in other words what buddhism proposes to do about it and i don't think these things are broadly speaking um incompatible with with uh you know major religions or anything like that so i don't i don't mean to be negating uh other world views, no now you grew up as a Christian, is that right? that's right I was uh, brought up Southern Baptist
0: and um, w- w- you know i I read in the book that that you you had a hard time reconciling science with a kind of a literal interpretation of 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 the in the book of Genesis and so forth, and uh, I never really felt that um, the Bible was meant to be taken literally. I mean, it was written thousands of years ago in another language to start with. And, and I, I, I kind of process it, especially kind of Jesus's words as a vehicle for light and not as a, as a you know fundamentalist, uh, like follow the rules kind of a thing. But um, did you take anything from Christianity with you into this next stage of your life?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, I, I suspect for starters that uh, the fact that I no longer was a Christian, no longer had a kind of obvious spiritual home, maybe, have, maybe encouraged me to look into Buddhism and to go to my first meditation retreat, which kind of sold me on the practice of Buddhism uh, in 2003. I also suspect that Values that I kind of associate with Christianity continue to inform my worldview and maybe attracted me to Buddhism. Um, And I I think particularly, you know, in my family, I would say the purest embodiment of what I took to be Christian values was probably my mother. Um, And I like to think, I mean, she really, I thought she really, you know, walked the walk. I mean, I thought, you know, she she kind of represented the best of the Christian message. And I like to think that she would very much approve of kind of the moral take home of my book and and and, you know, pretty much of a Buddhist philosophy. Um, I, I see a real compatibility, certainly uh, between the the Christian values I was taught um, and and Buddhist values.
0: I, I want to um ex- understand more what you mean by Buddhist values and and um for for one thing we see these huge statues of Buddha uh and that's that's you know one of the things that a lot of us think about when we think of Buddhism we think of Buddha and it's th- this statue of this um person in a meditating pose with hands in a certain position um but but then you write, and I keep reading about this idea of, of, of emptiness and um, transcending the idea of an individual self, and yet there's these statues of this actual human being. Um, what's that all about?
1: <laughs> there's a lot in that question, Danny. Um, the uh, uh, Okay, so there are these, uh, I mean, first of all, broadly, what do I mean by Buddhist values in terms of seeing a connection between them and Christian values. Well, uh, there one big Buddhist value is concern for the well-being of all sentient beings, the idea that suffering anywhere is a bad thing, um, and you should try to do something to reduce the amount of suffering in the world. I, I see that as a, a value I saw in my mother's version of Christianity, and I, I see it in Buddhism. Now, um, you're your uh well actually is one other value that uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily think of as central to buddhism or christianity and and this this may sound surprising but it's the the importance of seeing things from other people's points of view and 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 cultivating an ability to see things from others' people other people's view now that is i can think of um uh, some Bible verses that kind of point to that. And I would say that in Buddhism, it is at most implicit. It's not a really explicit value, but I very much see it as growing out of Buddhist practice and I see it, um, as one of the things the world most needs. I'm not talking about empathy in the sense of, uh, you know, emotional empathy, like feeling their pain that can also be good uh but but i'm talking about what psychologists call cognitive empathy just the ability to look at things from the point of view of any other human being any other world leader any other marginalized any marginalized teenager anywhere in the world anybody and and i i think that really is fostered by mindfulness meditation and i think it you know Getting out of yourself is part of that, which turns this, I guess, into a segue into the most challenging part of the question you ask, which is you brought up these ideas of emptiness and not self. These are two of the most – these are fundamental Buddhist ideas that – I mean, first of all, the the Buddhist idea is, look, we don't naturally see the world clearly. We have illusions about ourselves, about the world out there, and that's what makes us suffer, and that's what makes other people suffer. So if we could just clarify our vision through practices like meditation, we would suffer less and we'd be better people. Now, two of the central illusions in Buddhism are an illusion about the self that thinking that there's much more in me in the way of a solid kind of CEO in charge self than there is. And then this illusion uh, that we're covering a lot of ground here, but but the one that you allude to with the concept of emptiness, and I should probably take one of those at a time. So if you you do want me to um, elaborate on either, Do you have a a preference? I can get to both eventually. You'll get to
0: both in whatever way you want to get to it. I I just want people to understand what you're thinking and and get a glimpse into what they'll find in the book.
1: Okay. Well, as long as we were already on a kind of a moral plane and talking about values, let me me talk about emptiness a little. Uh, They both have moral implications. In theory, according to Buddhism, both seeing the emptiness in the world And seeing not self, seeing that you are not the self you thought you were, uh, make you a better person. But let's just just because emptiness sounds in a way the most mystifying, uh, the more mystifying of the two concepts, because it doesn't probably doesn't doesn't uh, connote anything at all to most people. Let me give you an example of uh, something that happened to me in my first meditation retreat. This is a week long silent meditation retreat in 2003. I had never meditated with anything like what I consider success. I have a short attention span. I'm not a natural meditator. I finally went on a week-long retreat. Uh, By day four or five, I was starting to feel like my consciousness had been transformed after a couple of days of very frustrating failure to focus on my breath. But I finally got in a kind of zone, and I was taking a walk in the woods. And this
0: involves a lot of silence, right, this retreat?
1: Yeah, you don't talk. To anybody and you don't get any news from the outside world uh you don't you shouldn't bring your smartphone you shouldn't be getting any e- put your email on auto reply you are in a cone of silence as they used to say on get smart um and uh you, you know you hear a dharma talk every evening and then like a couple of times in the week you have the opportunity to check in with a teacher to make sure nothing's going horribly wrong but it's it's basically silence it's like seven days I the most the longest i've done is two weeks in silence and meditating like about five and a half hours a day, sitting meditation and another five and a half hours a day, walking meditation. Um, So it's pretty intense. And by the end of the week, uh, it had been, I felt transformative. Um, But I was taking a walk through the woods and I saw a weed that uh, uh, called a plantain weed, which I had been trying to eradicate for years now because it 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 had infested my lawn. And I just suddenly had this feeling like, wait, why have I been trying to kill this weed? It looks just as beautiful as all the other plants in the forest. Mm. Now at one level, this is a trivial observation in a sense, because when you think about it, obviously weeds are a category that human beings made up, right? It's not like it says weed on their DNA, right? It's just some people in some culture said, I don't particularly want that kind of plant in my garden. That's a weed. Right. Um, But at another level, it was a very significant, if subtle, shift in my whole perception of the thing and what the, I no longer felt. And it is partly a feeling I no longer felt essence of weed when I looked at a weed. And that is what emptiness is, it, it, is the idea that things don't actually have essences. Human beings have been kind of trained and they do this by nature. It doesn't take a lot of persuasion. They 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 tend to see essences in things, and that uh, and, and it's so subtle they don't. So notice it's like it. kind
0: of seeing things through colored glasses.
1: Yeah, it, you don't notice it until it's gone. I had never thought that I was seeing essence of weed, and suddenly when it's gone, you're like, whoa! Uh, it's a different way. Of, it, this allows me to see beauty in the weed. I had always I had always gotten this negative vibe from this weed that prevented that. Now, this with a lot of things that you see essence in plants cars lamps the moral stakes aren't that high but when you move to the human realm and you start you know perceiving entire ethnic groups for starters as having some kind of vibe you know there, that is called essentialism right and and the reason is cuz you're 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 subtly imposing an essence on them and it also happens with individuals it's like that guy's my enemy that guy's my rival these these aren't just words they are perceptual shifts, they involve the perception of a kind of essence that then shapes the way you think about them and process information about them. And I think this is one thing that when you have a situation like America today is very tribalized, politically polarized, or you have a situation like the sectarian conflict in the Middle East, or just like conflict between nations, this kind of perceptual um, phenomenon becomes very important in, 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 in fomenting and then sustaining conflict.
0: Let me, if I could inter- interrupt with a question, though, about this idea of emptiness and seeing things without what you call essence. Um, I, you know, there's a cosmology that I, you know, use in my head a lot, and I guess it comes from, I don't know, Hindu stuff or, you know, hippie stuff of kind of differentiating between the ego and the soul and that and that the ego to me is the repository of these biases and this programming and that behind that there's something that for want of a better word is is a soul that sort of on one level who I really am and then and then you know and then I guess there's the whole essence of the universe which which would also include everybody but is is there not an in between thing between the sort of no, between sort of the tribalism and the ego world, and the um, merging with everything world? Is, do you do you have the, this notion of a soul, or 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 is that a contradiction of 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 the emptiness vibe?
1: Uh, that's a very good distinction to make between ego and soul, because I, I, what I would say is, I mean I can't you know. Well, I would say for starters. For practical purposes, the way to think about the not self idea is in terms of ego that is you know, in in my book, when I I, I, uh, I go through, you know, I get into what the Buddha supposedly actually said about not self in his first seminal sermon about not self, you know, and and was he really saying that the self doesn't exist or. Was it was he really just offer and some scholars think this, that he wasn't really asserting that the self doesn't exist as as came to be the mainstream Buddhist interpretation. But he was just really suggesting that it is it will be valuable to you. You will become a happier and better person if you look at a lot of the contents of your mind and say, you know, I don't think I want to identify with that. Right. You know, Like anxiety, hatred. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that kind of either constitute or emanate from the ego, depending on how you want to look at it, just you can let those go. And meditation is a discipline for letting them go. And uh, and I think that's the kind of, you know, practical, practically valuable way to think of this not self thing is as as a kind of a prescription for progress in meditation that involves Kind of deconstructing the ego now I, I think as a matter of fact although Buddhist philosophy is more kind of diverse and 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 uh, and and more characterized by internal disagreement than people may realize I think it's fair to say as a, in general no Buddhist philosophy doesn't buy into the concept of the soul the way Hindus do um, and in fact you know you mentioned does the the this issue of the soul merging with kind of the Universal soul. You know, in Hinduism it's Atman equals Brahman. Right. right the right. the and I, I had an experience that I describe in the book at a meditation retreat, which which super advanced meditators tell me is is a is is like closer to the way they experience the world the whole time. Okay. And the experience was it was almost like the bounds of myself were dissolving. I was sitting there meditating. It was like probably fifth or sixth day of my third or fourth retreat. And I'm um I I was feeling a tingling in my foot and I was hearing a bird singing and suddenly it felt like the bird was no less a part of me than the tingling and the tingling was no more a part of me than than the bird. It was it was as if my identity no longer stopped at the bounds of myself as I conventionally think of it. There was more continuity of identification and concern with, you know, I was I would be more concerned about the bird's welfare than I might have been before feeling this. And one thing I note in the book is that the way a Hindu interprets, the official Hindu way to interpret that that type of experience is as a merger of Atman with Brahman, as I understand it. Whereas Buddhists, because of this, you know, kind of strange sounding feature of Buddhist philosophy of denying the existence of the self, they would not put it that way. They would say that what's it's more like there's an expanse of emptiness that you're experiencing. Now for my money, I I don't see how the particular interpretive twist matters so much because in both cases you are, you know, you're identifying more with the rest of the world as a practical matter.
0: Right. And you're, and you're, and you're less identifying with a narrow set of personality traits. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that you know, at at uh, at some of the uh, Ramdas retreats that I've been to, he has a lot of Buddhists and he has Bhakti Hindus. And at one point, somebody listening, to, and and he gives Buddhists sort of two thirds of the time because I think he figures he can stand in for the Bhakti himself. And um, at some point, somebody said, um, "What's the difference exactly between this emptiness you talk about and universal love?" They sound a lot like the same thing, mm-hmm. um, right? So just different words, and and again, since there's so many different languages anyway, we just happen to be speaking English. What what you know, I I I I agree that there's uh, the commonality. The deeper I get into it, the more commonality there is, and the less separation between these different paths. But I don't want to get away from the question I asked a few
1: minutes ago. What's with all these statues? <laughs> well. One thing to remember is that in Asia, Buddhism is a real religion that, that is a lot more like the Western religions we're familiar with than we may realize. Now, my, my book is, is not about that part of Buddhism because, as I said, I don't get into the supernatural stuff. But, you know, uh, Westerners think, a lot of Westerners think that Buddhists are people who meditate and don't believe in God. If you're talking about Asian Buddhists, that's almost the opposite of the truth. Most Asian lay Buddhists do not meditate. Many many Asian mm. Buddhist monks do not meditate. Mm. And and almost all lay Buddhists do believe, not in a single omnipotent creator god, as in the Abrahamic religions, but they do believe in deities. They say prayers. They ask for things. And they hope that, that good conduct in this life will help them in the afterlife, in this case, in the form of uh, a favorable rebirth. So... You know, and, and I think if you ask why did there come to be all of these statues of the Buddha all over the place, I think the the answer is the why those have so flourished over the last two and a half millennia is that Buddhism has been a religion in Asia in a pretty conventional sense, and um you know, just so so same reason you see a lot of crosses in the world, you know, Christianity has also been a very successful religion now in Western. Buddhism, you know, the kind of more some people use the word secular Buddhism. Uh, I think of it as kind of naturalistic Buddhism in the sense that it, you know, there's nothing supernatural involved, you know, at the retreat centers where this kind of Western Buddhism uh, happens and people, you know, meditate a lot. You often see a statue of the Buddha. And as for why that is, I mean, look, the Buddha, the figure of the Buddha is authentically connected to the Philosophical, the tradition of, of philosophy and, the in a te- way, psychology.
0: Yeah, to the teachings. It's a way of reminding sure. oneself it's, it's, and it's, tuning into the teachings. It's a, it's a valuable teachings. icon,
1: yeah. whether it's Western or Asian Buddhism. It's it's a good icon.
0: And personally, uh, is is the book, which, again, is extremely welcoming to Westerners, and I think that's why it's doing so well, is it meets people wherever they are and, and uh, does not seem at all and does not impose some you know, foreign mysticism on people, and I say that as someone who loves and identifies with foreign mysticism, but, but, um, but is that a reflection of your beliefs or is that part of a wider group of beliefs that you decided to put into this book for the purposes of the book?
1: Oh, I think my book is pretty representative of this kind of Western Buddhism. But, in terms uh, of
0: what you personally when when you're not doing a podcast and you're not promoting the book and you're just in the privacy of your own thoughts is is this is this sort of sum up your your views or or is or or is it one branch of a group of
1: views? We've been so long since I wasn't promoting the book that I forgot <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten what the real me is like um, the, the, uh, but no i mean i I buy into it and I try in the book um I try to be you know. Pretty clear about the parts of it that I either don't get. Like I say in the book, you know, not self. If you mean it in the most extreme sense, then you know the self doesn't exist. What would that mean in the most extreme sense of doctrine? I don't get it. You know, I can't. Right. Uh, there are paradoxes when you start trying to, and I and I outline what some of the paradoxes are. I, I'm like, look, the first question you're going to ask is, when the Buddha says, if you let go of all of the parts of the self, you are liberated. Well, who is you if you've let go of everything that constitutes the self? You know, right? There shouldn't be anything left to be liberated in theory. So there are these paradoxes. And I just, when when I run into those and they don't make sense to me, I just say that. At the same time, I think Buddhism's diagnosis of the human predicament about how pervasive and recurring like unsatisfactoriness is. And by the way, the term dukkha that is often translated as suffering, when you hear people say the Buddha said that life is full of suffering, the term dukkha that's translated as suffering could also be translated as unsatisfactoriness. And I think that's in a way, uh, I mean, some scholars think that that would be a solid translation. And and I think that gets so things, you know, it, it, it picks up on what I think really are the problems we do. We do misperceive the world. We have illusions about ourselves, illusions about other people. Uh, we try to cling to pleasures that are not gonna last. And all of these things Buddhism says, I think are are the core things are fundamentally true. True are true. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and and um and by the way, I wrote a book about evolutionary psychology in the nineties, and that was what led me to believe they're true because because what evolutionary psychology says about the brain as designed by natural selection meshes very well with the Buddhist predicament. It's like, yeah, natural selection built us to be unsatisfied. So we would keep pursuing, you know, food and sex and status and stuff, right? We're designed to do that. But, it de- but we're not designed to be happy. And, and that quest uh, is not going to lead to enduring happiness.
0: Yeah, you, you, you write a lot about Darwin, and again, one of the virtues of the book is that it's very embracing of the theory of evolution and of people with scientific minds and, and who are committed to, to that view of the world, and I've certainly got nothing against Darwin, but I'm puzzled by this idea. On the one hand, it's always sort of described, and you described this a fair amount, as it's kind of the purpose of these inbred impulses or propagation of the species, you know, sending the genes on to the next generation. And then on the other hand, um, there's an enormous amount of self-destructiveness in human beings in this era of humanity, whether it's individual self-destructiveness, you know, suicide, drug abuse, overeating, uh, meanness, um, and, and, and in terms of societies, wars, global warming and, and so on. So, so why is all of these genes that are so into the propagation of the species uh, building nuclear arsenals?
1: Well there's a couple of reasons. I mean for starters remember that evolution isn't in a sense it's not really for the good of the species uh, by and large. I mean wh- you know the, com- the the bulk of the competition that drives natural selection takes place within the species. One individual has genes uh, of one, you know that are slightly different from the individual who lives next door in the same hunter gatherer village or whatever. And if those genes are slightly more conducive to getting the genes into the next generation, uh, then they will flourish. So there are genes for intense competition. uh, You know, genes seem to foster intense competition among people, even combat, uh, you know, in the sense of fighting with other people for status and for mates and for, you know, sometimes for food. Although I, I would say there's a lot of cooperative impulses that are also natural. Uh, And love is part of our, you know, endowment and compassion and so on. But there is a competitive uh, part and there is the fierce competition for status that seems to be natural. And then, you know, technology slowly transforms our environment and and we find ourselves in a world that we weren't designed by natural selection to live in because, you know, and I use designed in quotes because natural selection is not like a thinking process, but It does kind of metaphorically design things, but it didn't design us for this environment. And that accounts for a lot of our self-destructive behavior, a lot of the way addictions play out with, uh, you know, first of all, with chemicals that were not available during evolution that natural selection couldn't uh, anticipate, with with internet addictions that were not part of the environment. Um, We have new kinds of anxieties to deal with. Uh, because of the modern environment. And as you know, we, we have slowly built these weapons that are in the hands of of people who have unfortunate features like uh, refusing to back down. You know, people don't like to lose face. And right now the White House is occupied by someone who carries that to a pathological level. And um, so basically you get You know, we weren't we weren't designed in the first place to be all about love and mutual understanding, although those capacities are within us. And I think meditation is is one way to give them freer play. But but we also have this kind of dark, competitive, you know, deeply competitive, even violent side. And then you put you put that in an environment that's nothing like the environment that 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 the the organism was designed for. And bad things can happen, and and that's why I personally think we need some kind of revolution uh, in consciousness, whereby people, more and more people, become aware of uh, that some of the natural workings of the mind are unfortunate, and that if you want a truly clear view of the world, uh, and a morally better view of the world, and also a view of the world that'll make you happier, you have to learn to transcend some of the kinds of cognitive biases that are built into us. And I think that's a lot of what meditation is about. Um, Do you think that
0: that set of tools and attitude about the mind uh, could be brought into uh, Christianity? Because just mathematically in the United States, I mean, the majority of people identify as Christians. It's a smaller group than it used to be, but it's still a very big part of the psychology of the country and i uh, i think about christianity a lot i I think about the words of jesus and the sermon on the mount and the feeling i get when i think about jesus is so beautiful and so Mm -hmm. consistent with any other mystical set of beliefs i have and yet somehow the way it's practiced and this is human beings get in the middle this is true of all whether it's the enlightenment you know buddhism hinduism you know we screw it up, human beings. But I just, I just wonder if these ideas uh, could could um, could be integrated more. You don't have to give up Jesus to meditate, right?
1: Right. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, yeah, a lot of the teachings are quite consonant with my takeaway from Buddhism. Uh, there's a number of passages you could cite, but even the one where Jesus says, you know. Oh hypocrite! Why are you obsessed with the the speck in your I don't know your brother's eye or your friend's right. eye or whatever? When you have like a huge log in your own eye, and your vision is not clear, and you're focusing on you know. Right. And, and, and there's all kinds of things, or or the lilies of the the field. The, the point being, look, just focus on the moment. Tomorrow's troubles are sufficient, you know, for tomorrow. <laughs> don't worry, you know. And there's, there's all kinds of teachings that can be put to that use. And I would say. Two things. First of all, there are people who consciously fuse Buddhism and Christianity. There's a book by a guy named Paul Knitter, K-N-I-T-T-E-R, who is an emeritus at Union Theological Seminary in New York, where I have an affiliation myself, and which also has a Buddhism degree program, by the way. And his book is called Without Buddha, I Could Not Be a Christian. Mm. And then there's also, I think, kind of the smuggling in of some of this stuff into Christianity, just not under the name of Buddhism. I mean, I, I have a, a, a still, you know, my, my siblings are to varying degrees still Christian, and uh, I know one of them has done some meditating, and she just thinks of it as like mindfulness, not Buddhist mindfulness, but it's right, still right. meditating. And, and so you get a lot of that, and you even hear the language of mindfulness in sermons sometimes. So, you know, I, I don't care about the label. I mean, it's true that my book, you know, as you pointed out, is called Why Buddhism is True, but I don't. I don't really, uh, my point is that the ideas in there are, are valid. And if you want to put another label on them and practice them, fine.
0: Now, you, you quote William James, uh, who's in his book, The Bride's Reli- Religious of Experience, talked about an unseen order. Uh, mm-hmm. So do you think there's an unseen order in the universe?
1: Yeah, in I think there's a couple of candidates for that. Uh, I mean, um, you know, James was trying to come up with a conception of religion that was broad enough to encompass not only every all the conventional religions that that were already you know that were already in play, but also, um, I I, I think he was uh, concerned with um paving the way for what you might call modern you know more more modern religions, and and so he said the essence of religion is the idea that there's an unseen order and that our supreme interest lies in harmoniously adjusting to that order. And, you know, I say in the book, Buddhism does posit a kind of order and, and it's uh, that, that tends to be unseen, which is this, it, it says there is a natural convergence between the truth about the world, about just the objective truth about what is actually out there and the and moral truth and well-being or happiness and because you know in other words if you pursue this path of clarifying your vision through meditation and other disciplines you will more closely approximate the actual truth about the world the world you see and the and the you you see will be closer to the actual truth and you and your 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 behavior especially if guided by buddhist ethical precepts will come into closer compliance with moral truth so there's a kind of order there that can be achieved that we don't often think of, but it's there. And so I think you could view that as a kind of unseen order. I've talked in the past about other other candidates for an unseen order that, that I needn't get into here. But I think, I mean, look, the universe, I, I think this is that claim is basically right, that, that there can be this convergence of clarity about the world, moral clarity, and well-being. And the universe didn't have to be built that way right? I mean, I think that's something we should, it's a kind of, you could say, structure in the world that we can take advantage of and that we should be thankful for.
0: I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about morality and ethics, whatever. You know, I I I, I understand from what you're saying that the compassion for all beings is part of Buddhism, and I've heard that, and I believe it, and I think Buddhists in general are very kind people but I don't quite understand where the connective tissue is between emptiness and morality and compassion. How do those things connect?
1: Well, in a way, the more obvious connection, of these two great, well, Buddhist claims about illusion that I I spend time on in the book, not self and emptiness, one is more emphasized in what's called Theravadan Buddhism, and one and, and that's not self. And emptiness is more emphasized in Mahayana Buddhism, I would say. Although not self is certainly emphasized in both, and to some extent, uh, emptiness. Uh, but 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 there is a difference of emph- emphasis. And I would say, for starters, the more obvious connection with morality is is between is in the not self idea, right? Because you're letting go of these selfish impulses and not just not just obviously selfish impulses like, you know, I want to eat that junk food. I I want to I, I want to get this promotion and make sure the other guy doesn't get it. I, I, I you know, and so on. It, much subtler uh, perceptions almost that are self-serving, but are so subtle you don't notice them. And that kind of leads to emptiness, how emptiness could make you a better person because, emptiness is partly about how self-serving feelings subtly shade your perception of other people, including the people that are your enemies, your rivals, including the people that you've convinced yourself are bad, even though you don't know much about them. The people you've convinced yourself deserve to suffer, even though your grounds for believing that are actually pretty slim. So to see emptiness, would be for one thing to not see that kind of essence of, of bad person that you are projecting on to people with very often with limited on the basis of li- very limited evidence and, and 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 projections that are ultimately just self-serving. It's because you and this guy want the same girl or something or or you know or whatever that 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 that's that is shading your whole moral calculus about this person. In, in an ultimately self-serving way. And if you truly saw the emptiness in the world, and by the way, not many people ever see this in a thoroughgoing way, although I've talked to some people who seem to see it in a pretty thoroughgoing way and they're in the book, but, but if you saw true emptiness, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see these people in these self-servingly biased ways. And that's where the moral implication comes. And, and and when somebody let, let's take the uh, war when somebody tries to um, convince you to, in the course of trying to convince you to evade, invade Iraq in 2003, um, they try to demonize the leader as much as possible. The, the, then, if you didn't see emptiness, you would be capable of saying, you know, you, you wouldn't get wrapped up in, in the rhetoric. You'd go, you know, Saddam Hussein has done some bad things. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but let's. You know, rather than let me try to draw me into a perception of him that gives me the gut feeling that we just have to kill him. Let's look at this rationally and ask what purpose is served by a rock and so on. So I think, you know, emptiness, both not self-emptiness permit a more kind of level headed assessment of the moral universe.
0: Well, it sounds a little more like rationality. To it me, is. than morality are, 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 are well, those
1: It's rational morality. I mean, if you ask me, uh, you know, a, a lot of I mean, immorality is a failure of rationality. At some mm. level, you mm. know, right. I mean, uh, you know, any any. I, I think most philosophers, if you ask them what ethical system they subscribe to, after they told you, if you said, "Well, is that rational?" They say, "Of course, that's what an ethical. We want a rational ethical system, and and yeah. and we want." Uh, people to then be able to pursue uh, the values it posits in a rational, clear-headed way, and not to get, you know, drawn into these like primitive reactions that natural selection built into us. And meditation helps us transcend those kinds of reactions and and both not self and emptiness, as strange as they sound, are uh, are kinds of perceptions that facilitate the clear, assessment of things, you know, unadulterated or at least as little adulterated as possible by these primitive instincts.
0: Now, you come back again and again in the book to this retreat that you went to in 2003 that was, I guess, a turning point in your self-identification with with Buddhism and meditation, and you refer many other times to, to these retreats. Why the need for a retreat? Why the need to be in a group of people... Uh, in a structured way. Why why not just meditate on your own?
1: Uh I do first of all I do. No, I mean obviously I, I
0: know you do, but I'm just what is it particularly about this group experience that's a link on the chain of, of uh of, of the path that you write about?
1: Well, I think, you know, as a lot of people who meditate have found, it's not always easy to sustain a daily practice, even if you're convinced that, you know, even if you you, you see that, you know, when I do spend the 30 minutes on the cushion every morning or 20 or 40 or whatever it is, the date seems to go better. I say fewer regrettable things and, and, and I see a little more beauty in the world and so on. Even if you see that, it still can be hard. There will be days when you've got a lot to do, you don't have time, and it's easy to kind of fall off the path. And mm-hmm. And there are a couple of ways to reinforce a practice that involve community. One is to find a group of people in your literal physical community, your geographic area, who meditate every week and and make that a ritual where you are part of this community and 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 that helps sustain your daily practice. Uh, I don't have one of those. So it is it is helpful to me to just, you know, every year or so. I've averaged slightly less than one retreat a year over the last uh, seven or eight years, Uh, every year or so go on a retreat that, you know, if if all goes well and it usually does provides you a major recharge, you know, for your practice. Um, So, and then in addition to that, aside from its value in sustaining a daily practice, it's just an intense and interesting experience. It's like extreme sports for the mind. And and it also, it can give you, you know, like we talked about not self and emptiness. Well, the number of people who actually walk around the world apprehending it through those kinds of lenses, the lenses of not self and emptiness is very small because you, you have to be really committed to meditation for that to be very likely to happen. But I do... It, think that if, on a retreat, you can have brushes with those experiences and get a, a much better sense of what the deeper version of the experience is like. And one benefit of that, this also connects back to your daily practice, because then you realize more deeply that, hey, when I let go of some anxiety. That's not just therapeutic. It is therapeutic. when i when i when I just kind of observe my anxiety and choose not to identify with it and it no longer makes me suffer, um, that is a therapeutic value, but it's also an incremental step toward the apprehension of not self because it's a part of you that you had previously thought of as part of you. And then for that few minutes or that day or whatever, it's you're not thinking of it as part of you that that is it is therapeutic, but it's also, a step toward what is in Buddhism a very deep and philosophically significant achievement, the the full-on apprehension of not-self. Mm. and And so too with like, if you just don't see essence of jerk in someone, you know, like some guy is rude in the checkout line in front of you and you refrain from, and the truth is you don't know why, whether he's habitually rude or he just found out that his spouse has cancer or what, you don't know why he's being rude at that moment. If you refrain from seeing like essence of jerk in him, I would say that is an incremental step toward emptiness. So I think I think going on retreat can give you a, 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 an, an intuitive uh, uh, approximation of a closer, a, a more intuitive sense of what these really deep apprehensions are like. And that can help you see a connection between what you can do with a daily practice and kind of the deepest parts of Buddhist philosophy.
0: Yeah, I found um for many, many, many years I convinced myself that I couldn't meditate. And that I and I, I'm so grateful you def define yourself as a D D in the book because it gives courage to those of us that look at ourselves that way. And but um and and but but I found because I I was touched by Ram Das's devotion to his guru, and I had a teacher named Hilda Charlton that was devoted to her guru, that I could pray. And so for decades, people would say, do you meditate? I said, I don't always meditate. I meditate occasionally, but I I always remember to pray. Because to me, the idea of tuning into this unseen order uh, was better than nothing. And it got me, and then for no reason that I'm conscious of, a few years ago, now I just meditate every morning. I don't quite always get up to 40 minutes, but I certainly, it's always more than 20 and mm-hmm. it's been a, a tremendously positive thing in my life. It's now to the point if I don't do it, I just my day is screwed up. So I am very grateful for that and I and I think it's very good anything that gets people to do that by whatever path is a huge contribution. But I would just like to end uh if you could if you could talk about something that I've I've read you talk about in interviews and and in the book because I think it's so helpful. Uh, because a lot of people I know feel I'm just not a good enough person. I'm not smart enough. I'm not disciplined enough to actually become enlightened. So what's the point? And I love this idea of yours that, you know, half a loaf is better than none. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and, and so I, could you, do you, could you talk about that, that a little bit of enlightenment is, is still better than nothing? And,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, enlightenment, you can think of it as a state as and, and in a Buddhist context, that's the way people usually think of it. It's like, oh, it's this threshold that if I just meditate forever, maybe I'll suddenly cross over into right enlightenment. I'll see things with perfect clarity. I will be liberated from suffering I, nirvana, you know. Great. But you can also think of enlightenment as a process, which is another thing that the word literally means, right? Getting more enlightened mm. than you were before. Mm. And any increment of clarifying your vision, I think you should think of as as qualifying as enlightenment. Right. And 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 that's why I I, I want people to think you know d- to keep in mind these deep Buddhist concepts of not self emptiness and so on and and other ones, and not think that they failed if they don't get all the way, um, because you you know very 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 few of us have realistic aspirations of getting all the way to say the least. But but you you I think you should use the word enlightenment or at least feel free to think in those terms unashamedly and, mm. and be be happy if your view of the world is getting uh, clearer. And and if it's making you happier and a better person, as I think it will, um you know, that's a great bonus.
0: Fantastic way to end. I thank you so much for spending this time with me and i urge anyone listening to this to, to read the book whether you think of yourself as a buddhist or not it's a great read and it's uh, it is itself enlightening
1: thank you danny i really appreciate it great great questions and a great conversation cool all right later bye-bye